0: Is Jesus really the only way to God?
1: How
2: can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering?
1: How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? Can women lead in the church? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast.
0: Mother's Day has always pretty much sucked for me uh, for the last 20-something years, 28 years um, since my mum died, but I shared this morning, and I really, really mean it. I almost said this morning I've always been attracted to older women, but I didn't mean it like that, and I'm glad I didn't, and now I just did, but... Um, I've always found, you know, if you're here last week, you remember watched a video. I think it was Sam Albury, who's the, um, the pastor who's same sex attracted. And he was talking about, I think, really beautifully about how the church has become so precious to him because it has become like the wife that he doesn't have um, and will never have, um, and the family that he, that he doesn't have. And um, I've, I've always found, really, even before I became a Christian going along to church, that um, that God always provided significant women in my life along the way that I was just really drawn to and who became kind of like a mother to me. And so um, Mother's Day is redeemed along with everything else um, in God's goodness. Our Mother's Day this afternoon was fun. I said to Renee, I, I kind of ducked out of here early this morning, and because um, Re- Renee always gets... Stooged on these days because I'm always here all the time. So I was like, oh, "There's other, there's other people here. I will just leave." And so we got home, and I was like, Ah, oh, "Baby, we can do anything you want." Normally on Sunday, she's really good to me, and she gets me to go and have a rest between services. And I was like, "No, we're, we'll do whatever you want. We'll go, we'll go and do something as a family, you know." And she, so she was like, "Oh yeah, we should do this and this." And then five minutes later, she was asleep, and she, I, I had to wake her up in order to get up here on time. So. Um, while she was sleeping, and whenever she 's sleeping, me and the kids do stuff that she wouldn 't let them do otherwise and so this this afternoon we were um, just digging up the garden and making this big wheelbarrow full of mud um, and just putting toys in it and mixing it up and getting it all over ourselves and stuff and wh- While we were doing that, we were digging next to the house and um, and our house uh, is a two-story house. It's the, the church owns it. We live in it. And we were digging next to it. And um, and I noticed right up the wall, this big brick wall, right up, there was this massive crack in it from top to bottom, bottom to top. And if you go into our house, you'll notice these cracks like appear at various locations. And in fact, if you walk around this building, you'll see similar cracks all over the place, and it turns out that Caroline Springs just likes to move around a lot, and, um, and <laughs> I've had to get in touch with some people recently to come out and do, like an engineer to come out and have a look at it and make sure it's not about to fall in on us, and the point of this story is <laughs> that it turns out that foundations are really important if you're ever going to put something heavy on the ground, just imagine how, like our house is a two-story house. It's a pretty big house. That's a heavy thing, right? Imagine this building. I don't know how much, how many kilos this building weighs, but it's probably a lot, right? I'm guessing. And so the foundations have to be really solid, and if they're not, and they're not, then you get into a lot of trouble. And at our church, we put a huge amount of weight on God's word. We really pile the weight on. It's triple story, right? And we believe that God's word is not only authoritative over us, but it's transformative in us. It doesn't just tell us what to do, but it changes us as we read it. That's a, that's a big expectation to put on a book, right? You don't do that with Alice in Wonderland. Thank goodness, because I read that the other night. That is the weirdest book ever. I'm 10% weirder after reading this. But we put a lot of weight on this book. We put a huge expectation on this book. And we, as a church, exist to make all of life all about Jesus. And we say that that will happen almost primarily as we soak ourselves in the Scriptures. It's a big expectation. And so I think... Part of the reason why this question was so popular when we were asking you guys is because you want to know, can we trust this thing? If we're going to put all this weight on it, does it have strong enough foundations to hold the weight? It's a good question. And so tonight I, um, I spent all week trying to figure out how to get all this information into some kind of semblance of a talk, and last night I finally cracked it, I thought, We'll make it Trinitarian, okay? So I'm pretending to be a Baptist preacher this morning. I've got three points, and my three points are based on the three persons of the Trinity. So I want to talk about the nature of God and the witness of Jesus and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, all as they pertain to this book so every week we encourage you to get this book and to follow along with me, but there are, I've got about 15 or more passages that I want us to look at, so it's probably just easier for you to look to the screen. Everything will be up there. If you're really quick at flicking around, then grab the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, just take that with you. That's our gift to you. The reason we give these Bibles away, and it does hurt us, like the Bibles aren't cheap, and we keep saying, take one of these if you don't have it, and people keep taking them. And it hurts financially. But the reason we do it is because we really believe this stuff. We really believe that the Bible is all that stuff that I've been talking about. So I'm going to start off this morning talking about the nature of God. And here's the thing that's maybe surprising to those of us who have grown up in Christian context. The truth is that for most people who have ever lived... Most religious people, most of the people who have ever worshipped a god or gods, have worshipped entities that don't speak. So we take it for granted that our god is a speaking god, and this is fundamental to his nature. You can't shut him up. He's just he's speaking. He speaks all the time. But for most of the people who have ever lived, they have worshipped gods that don't communicate. They don't speak. Usually, because the gods that they worship were made with their own hands, like out in the shed, carving up a you know god for the fruit bowl or whatever. And so, in the book of Habakkuk, this is what great name, by the way. If any of you guys are looking for names for your kids, Habakkuk, he says, "Of what value is an an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies?" For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. And so from the Old Testament people of God through to the New Testament, they were very keen for the people around them to know that our God speaks. He's a speaking God. And that makes him better than your mute gods, your gods that have been made by your hands. The people of the Old Testament were keen to say, this is the creator God, not some creation of our own making. And so it was true for the people of Israel and it was true of uh, Paul as well in the early church in the context he was ministering in, in the midst of paganism where there are 10 million gods, a god for everything. In ancient Rome, there was a god for the gutter, a god for the sewer. And he said in 1 Corinthians 12, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, like you can't even believe it, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. And he wanted to draw the attention to the glorious fact that the God we worship is a God who speaks. And the Bible says that God speaks through his world and through his word. A great place where these two things come together is in Psalm 19. Okay, so Psalm 19, 1 to 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Think about that. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Psalms is saying God's creation just thrills with the knowledge of Him. It constantly pours forth speech about Him, so that we should be able to look out on an an incredible landscape and say, "God is good." Paul says in Romans 1, you know, just by looking at creation, we we should be able to know that God is divine and God is powerful. And I would add God is supremely creative. The stuff he's come up with blows my mind. Now, the problem with God speaking through his world is that we don't get much detail. Like Paul says, you can see he's powerful, you can see he's divine. You can see he's other than us. You can see he's creator and that we're creation, but you don't get much detail about who he is, what he's like. It's like looking at an, an incredible painting in an art gallery. You might get a little bit of an understanding as to the, the ability of the artist, but you're not going to get much about her biography. Right. So the problem with hearing God in his world is that we don't get a lot of detail. And then Paul says, even when we do, natural man suppresses the truth. We see the beauty in creation and we deny the fact that it was created by a good and beautiful God. And so God doesn't just speak through his world, though he does, he also speaks through his word. And in the the next few verses of Psalm 19, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Is that, is that how you feel about the Bible? All of these adjectives are just different words for God's word. So the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. The purest gold, the purest honey, the word of the Lord is better than all of these things. So the problem we have in our quest to know God, and I believe that everyone on earth wants to know God, whether they suppress that truth or not, everyone wants to know God. The problem we have is that God is too far above us for us to see him, to understand him. He says himself in Isaiah 55, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's easy for us to make ourselves just a little lower than God. How much further away from us is he? What kind of telescope do we need, you know? And the writer in Isaiah says, his ways, his thoughts, his being, his attributes, his personality, they're all as far far away from us as the heavens are above the earth. And so if we're going to know God, we need him to reveal himself to us. He's too far away for us to see him clearly. And so much scientific exploration, so much philosophical outworking, so much religion is all centered on speculation. We speculate, we speculate, we speculate. We take the tools that we have at our disposal, and we, we try and get as much information as we can. But Christianity says, no, it's not about speculation. It's about revelation. You can't know God unless he reveals himself to you. I love what Hilary of Portier said, fourth century theologian, only God is a fit witness to himself. Do you get that? Really, I mean, how much could we know apart from God revealing himself to us? None of us is a good enough witness, even the greatest prophet. you want to throw all of your chips in with some great prophet, Prophet Muhammad you know he just he knew so much but he, no he doesn't know enough he can't see clearly enough we need God to reveal himself to us because only God is a fit witness to himself and that's why Paul prayed and said to his church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1 he says i keep asking that the god of our lord jesus christ the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. If you want to know God, God is going to have to reveal himself to you. You're just not that good. And so, lucky for us, God by his very nature is a speaking God. He's a self-revealing God. He wants to make himself known to us and he has Made himself known to us in his world and in his word. So that's a little bit about God's nature as it pertains to the scriptures. Now I want to look at the witness of Jesus. So during Easter we talked about at length about how Jesus is trustworthy, how we can trust in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we came to the conclusion that he's, he's no lunatic, he's no liar, he's actually the Lord and as the Lord we can put our trust in him, as the Lord we can follow him, become disciples of him and obey him. And so it matters to us what Jesus thinks about the scriptures. If Jesus doesn't buy into the scriptures, then we shouldn't either. It doesn't matter what you've heard before, it doesn't matter what the Bible says about itself, if Jesus isn't into it, then neither should we be. Because we're his disciples. And the incredible thing about Jesus is that he is described in the Bible as a kind of living and breathing Bible. We have the Word of God and we have the Word of God. You now, John introduces Jesus in that great prologue to his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word. That in some sense, Jesus is. Scripture, not that he's contained by Scripture like some kind of finite ink on paper, but that he, when he speaks, reveals God in the same way that the Scripture does. He says incredible things, like in John 14. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That when we look at Jesus, we know who God is and we've seen him. Because Jesus is God in human flesh, he's the Word made flesh. So he reveals God to us. And the writer of the Hebrews describes Jesus in this way. He says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Jesus is so God that he's the one who made everything. And when he speaks... He speaks truth. But what does he say about the rest of the Bible, right? He could, maybe he had the view that what he said was trustworthy, but everything else was a little bit sketchy. Well, it turns out no, Jesus absolutely and utterly believed in the veracity, in the truth of the scriptures. So he spoke of the Old Testament, obviously New Testament not yet written when he's trotting around the place, but he spoke of the Old Testament scriptures in, in, uh, in absolute terms. So in John, do I have John 17? Do I have a passage from John 17? Yeah. He says, as he prays for his disciples, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word. Genesis to Malachi. Every word of the Old Testament scriptures is truth. And Jesus says his disciples will be sanctified by that truth, by that word. That's why we believe the Bible is not just Authoritative, but it's transformative. It's how God sanctifies us. And he said in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the summary statement of the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says, you take the whole New Testament and the smallest apostrophe isn't being deleted by me until the end comes. So he just takes the whole thing and says, this is true. And then he speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the New Testament. So he looks ahead. He knows he's about to die. He's about to ascend. He's about to leave his disciples. And they're freaking out because they've had Jesus teaching them, right? Just imagine that. Like you might skip your daily Bible reading, but Jesus is talking to you. And then they find out that he's going. And the way he encourages them is by talking about the Advocate, the Holy Spirit. He says, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. It's an amazing promise. That's how we have the New Testament Scriptures, in such clarity, such detail. There are two things going on. There's the the incredible ability of first century people to remember massive amounts of data that we can never dream of. Like, we're all morons. Can we just admit that? We've got all kinds of devices to remind us of stuff, which has meant that we don't remember anything. Whereas these guys didn't have that They knew that they had the oracles of God. Yes, they had them written down, but most of the time they were transmitted orally, and so they had to remember them. And it just blows my mind that the Pharisees memorized the Old Testament. The Old Testament, not like a memory verse. So they had that going for them, and then they had this great promise from God. God was going to superintend the process so that nothing was lost. The Spirit, who is the inspirer of the word, would remind them of everything. And again, he gave them more comfort when speaking of the Holy Spirit that was to come. He said in uh, John, what is it? 15, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And really, that's what every inspired writer from Genesis to Revelation was on about. They were on about that. Remember when Jesus was risen from the dead and he's walking along the road to Emmaus, he comes across a couple of his disciples that don't really recognize him, but what does he do? While he's walking with them, he opens the scriptures and he shows them how all of the scriptures were about him. That's the crazy thing about the Bible, 66 different books written over thousands of years in different cultures with different influences, and yet they all have the same theme. They all have the same big idea. They all point to Jesus. It's one big testimony about the lordship of Jesus. Now, that just doesn't happen unless God is overseeing the process. It wasn't only Jesus who affirmed the veracity of the New Testament. His own apostles spoke in astounding ways. If you think about the culture, first century Judaism, they viewed the scriptures with with more devotion than we do. Much more. They considered them to actually be holy. Holy Bible wasn't just a title. It was for real. Like, God ensured that the Old Testament was kept under lock and key in the tabernacle and then in the temple so that no one would mess with his word, so that they could be absolutely sure that this is words that he had spoken. And so the scriptures became for Jews something very sacred, and yet Peter still spoke about Paul's writing like this. He said, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He goes further. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Jews don't talk like that. He just said Paul's letters are scripture. And he speaks of his own writing as being not from the wisdom of man, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Incredible statement. Now, the reason he made it is because he heard what Jesus said. This is exactly what the Spirit was going to do. And so we've got the nature of God. He's a God who speaks. Thank God for that. We don't need to rely on our own speculation. You'll see that in traditions where the Bible has been sidelined, there is a much greater emphasis on a new word, a new prophecy, a new revelation. Here at which our church we talk about the fact that we're charismatic with a seatbelt. all right? So we believe in the full range of the charismatic gifts. We believe that the Spirit is eager to bestow those gifts on us. We agree with Paul who said, zealously, eagerly pursue the gifts, especially that you may prophesy. But he also said that we know in part and we prophesy in part, that we need to weigh all prophecy, all words of knowledge, all visions against what? The scriptures. So where the word of God is sidelined, we rely on these other means that God does use to speak to us, but we don't have the standard anymore to judge those words by. And so we become naive. And Paul says, we do it to our own destruction. This is the word of God. This is... Absolutely trustworthy. Whatever page you turn to, you know, you can know that God is speaking to you. We prophesy in part, but God's word never fails us. So Jesus truly believed in the trustworthiness of the scriptures, Old Testament and the new that was to come. And so, this is why I get very irritated by people who call themselves Christian leaders, and I'm surrounded by them in my own denomination. People who call themselves not only Christian leaders, but disciples of Jesus, who say, Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't accept the authority of the scriptures. And they don't seem like disciples to me, they seem like traitors. How can you follow Jesus if you don't believe the same as he does? So God's nature is to speak. Jesus absolutely, absolutely and utterly affirmed the trustworthiness of the scriptures. And now I want to talk about something that has only really occurred to me in recent years. I think five or six years ago, I would just stop the sermon there. Apologies to you guys, I was hoping I would. Um, But I would just stop it there and I'd say, yes, God God speaks and Jesus affirms, but only recently have I come to terms with the fact, just how important it is that as we read the Bible, we experience an inward testimony that comes from the the Spirit, an inward conviction. And I love the fact that, that one of the most hardcore Bible scholars in all of human history believes this too. So John Calvin, this is what he says in his Institutes. He said, The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the spirit in this context he's talking about these historical arguments he can make for the veracity of the scriptures right yes there's all these reasons to believe that what we have is really the word of God but he says all of that is less important than having the inward testimony and confirmation and conviction of the spirit as you read the spirit's words he says that's more important than anything else until you have that you're not going to accept what the word is saying to you or perhaps you'll just sort of gloss over it or maybe it'll be like so much water through a pipe it'll just kind of pass through and won't make any difference to you and so what I I believe we ought to be doing as we read the Bible and I hope you're reading the Bible as we read the Bible we need to be praying Holy Spirit please illuminate the darkness. And this doesn't come by any means exterior to reading the Word. So we're not saying, in addition to showing me something in the Word, please give me some kind of fresh revelation. We're no, the Spirit does this through the Word. It's one and the same. It just depends on whether we are receptive to what He's giving us. And so we ought to pray that we are receptive to it, that it will change us, that we will be convicted by it. Yeah, so Jesus in Matthew 16, you know, he's asking his disciples, who do people say I am? And they're like, well, some people think you're John the Baptist and some people think you're Elijah. He says, "Who, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now how many of us, now I'm just the chief of sinners, how many of us read down, sit down to read God's word, and we're just doing flesh and blood work? I've got five years theological education, and I can read the original Greek. Who cares? There are plenty of people who are professors of biblical languages, who aren't Christians. It's never made any difference to their hearts. It's never changed them. There's never been any illumination. And Jesus says, that needs to come from your Father in heaven. And Paul says the same thing. So in 2 Corinthians, he says, for God who said, let sh- light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's a beautiful passage. What he's saying is, you know, you know how God created light? There's nothing. And then he said, let there be light. And boom, the lights went on. He said, that happens as we see the beauty the glory of the face of Christ in his word illumination happens let there be light and we can't talk about the bible without having the, the 2 Timothy chapter 3 all right so paul's talking to his his son in the faith his little protege loves him so much. He's dropped him into Ephesus. The church is crazy. There's all kinds of false teachers running around, and there's like this fertility cult where the women are all priestesses, and they're trying to take over the church. And he's just—he, like—I can just—he just feels for him, right? And so he's trying to give him advice in these pastoral epistles. And what he encourages him to do is to keep preaching the word. Preach in season and out of season, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when it's working, when it's not working, when there's a church full of people and when no one turns up. He's just encouraging, be a man of the word, be a good workman, and he encourages him to keep preaching what he knows, to keep preaching what he's become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here it comes, all scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. And training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you're a disciple of Jesus here tonight, you want that. You want to be equipped for every good work. Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul describes how before the foundation of the world, God set out for each one of you these works, these good works that he wants you to walk in. And if you want to be able to walk in them, you need to be equipped. And he says, you will be equipped as you are rebuked and taught and corrected and trained in righteousness. To be trained in righteousness is just to be made more like Jesus, the only righteous one. He says, all of this is on tap every time you open the Bible. And most of the Christians who have ever lived didn't have 15 copies under their bed like you do. And we take it so for granted. It's just there. It's waiting for us. So yeah, we worship a God who speaks. And he speaks in such a way that we can understand. That's the other incredible thing. I don't know if you've ever tried to read another language or just some kind of textbook that was way above your head. You're doing a five-year course at uni and you start in year one in the fifth-year textbook and it's just gobbledygook. That's how God could speak to us if he was worried about his position. But no, he condescends to us and speaks to us in our language. It's crazy. Jesus testified to the truth and goodness and beauty of the, the word of God. And as we read it, we pray that God would give us by his spirit that inner conviction, that inner testimony that this is true. I want to finish by just reading you an example of this from history, just how true this was for Takichi Ishii. By the way, this is a book called A Peculiar Glory, and it's all about what I've been talking about, but it's at much greater depth. And... uh, If you want to go really deep into this, this is a good book. It's by Johnny Pipes. All right, here's Takichi Ishii's story. The conversion and execution of Takichi Ishii. So he was hanged for murder in Tokyo in 1918. He'd been a prisoner over 20 times and was known for being as cruel as a tiger. On one occasion, after attacking a prison official... He was gagged and bound and his body was suspended in such a way that his toes barely touched the ground, but he stubbornly refused to say he was sorry for what he'd done. And just before being sentenced to death, Takichi was sent a New Testament by two Christian missionaries, Miss West and Miss McDonald. By the way, if, you, if, you, if you've never read about 20th century single female missionaries, you need, to, you need to do that. These were women who never had a Mother's Day because they just gave themselves to the mission field. Most of them died young, either killed or died from some kind of tropical disease. But heaps of them were going to places like Japan in the 20th century. And so he got Miss West and Miss MacDonald, and after a, a visit from Miss West, he began to read the story of Jesus' trial and execution, current affairs. So his attention was riveted by one sentence, Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This sentence transformed his life. He said this, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart I believed. That's the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit just landing on someone and taking them from unbelief to belief. Taking him from being stubbornly refusing to to show any Kind of submission to the authorities to just before he was executed, he said his execution was the fair and impartial judgment of God. And Miss West continued to visit him and took him to 2 Corinthians 6 and talked about Paul's own sufferings. And he wrote this right before he was killed. He picked up on Paul's statement of being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. A sorrowful yet always rejoicing. People will say that I must have a very sorrowful heart because I am daily awaiting the execution and death sentence. This is not the case. I feel neither sorrow nor distress nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell six feet by nine feet, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. Day and night, I am talking with Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of a man who read the scriptures and was changed by them. And my own testimony is similar. I'd become a Christian when I was 19. I was in the midst of great suffering. Someone told me to read Job. I'd been brought up in a Christian household. I'd constantly, constantly, constantly pushed God to the sidelines. And then I read at the very end of Job chapter 42, Job finally falls on his knees and acknowledges God to be God. In Job 42, he says... I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes. And that just five-inch nail stuff. I just dropped my Bible, and every Bible I've owned ever since, I've underlined that. That's exactly how I felt. So, if you're here tonight and you kind of don't really know God that well. Maybe there's just a little bit of a yearning inside that you you want to know if there's something bigger than you. There must be something bigger than you and your daily toil. Then I want to encourage you with Ishi's story, with my story. God really does speak through his word. He reveals himself to us. It's the only way we can know exactly who he is and what he's like. And if you're a Christian here tonight, which is most of you, then God save us from blithely accepting that this is God's word and then never soaking in it. Never asking God to reveal himself to us. Something new, something fresh. One of the things I like to do when I read my Bible is just ask God, please, as I read this, tether my heart to you in heaven. I'm going to wander. I'm going to stray. I need you to grab a hold of my heart. Show me yourself. I'd love that to be true of us. Otherwise, all of our talk about being a Bible church is just cheap talk. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you as the God who speaks. You are no mute idol. You're not something we've crafted with our hands or even in our hearts or minds. You are who you are. So I thank you for showing yourself to us. Everything about you is beautiful. We want to see more of you. We want to know more and experience more. Father, I thank you that we can put our trust in this word that you've given to us. Thank you that we have the testimony of the Lord Jesus who believed in the scriptures and referred to them constantly. Father, I thank you that there is mountains of good historical evidence for the trustworthiness of the scriptures. But even more than that, Lord, we seek something which is more rich, more meaningful, an inward conviction, an inward confirmation. Lord, I pray for each one of these brothers and sisters gathered here tonight, that as they open the word this week, that you would give them that perhaps for the first time, that sweet serenity of knowing your voice, your voice speaking to us on every page. We can trust this. I pray that you would continue to shape this church with the scriptures, save us, from being like so many churches before who started out with great convictions and then let it all go. Keep us close. And as we look ahead to the, uh, the next six weeks of this series, we pray that your word would speak to us. It is our highest authority, and without it we are lost. So please, continue to speak. May your word be a light for our path. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: All right, first question. Why don't we have the same books in our Bible as the Catholic Church? What about the other Gospels that have been found?
0: Yeah, uh, this is a really easy one. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have more books in their Old Testament than we do. And since the Reformation, we've called those the Apocrypha. They're apocryphal books. They, they're um, dubious. And so um, Christians, since the Reformation, have generally said that these books are helpful. Like the books of the Maccabees, for example, give us great amount of historical context for their Old Testament scriptures. But they're not scripture. They're not breathed out by God. Uh, and the reason we know they're not is because the people of God in the Old Testament didn't think they were. The people who wrote them didn't think they were. So it would be silly for us to think they are. Um, the, the Old Testament canon was that Jesus read is exactly the same as we have, that we have today. Um, so God was very particular about keeping that sacred. And the historian Josephus in the first century told us. These are the books of the Old Testament. They're the same ones that we've got without those extra ones that we don't need. What's the other one? The Gospels. Hmm. Yeah, the New New Testament canon was, that came about, So, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, he's like, oh, that was so nefarious. It was like Constantine just wanted to take over the world. And so they came up with these books of the Bible. And the truth is, they're just the books that the early church believed were the scriptures. And they had this threefold test it had to be apostolic, so it had to be written by an apostle, someone who knew Jesus, or co-authored by an apostle, like Mark's gospel with Peter, or someone who was very close to the apostles. It had to be widely received, so all the churches around had to agree, this is the scriptures, not just one special church, like in Rome, right? It was just everyone agreed, and it had to be orthodox, so they didn't accept anything that contradicted something that was vital to the gospel. So, and that was the same then as it is now. If we dug up a gospel and it was, uh, you know, from the third year 35 or something really close and it had all this detail, we'd still reject it because the early church didn't accept it, obviously. Um, so that's why we don't expect, accept those other things.
2: Hmm. All right, next question. Uh, this one starts off as
1: hey. I'm just,
2: I'm just reading what it says. So, hey, what are your thoughts on contradictory verses slash chapters in today's Bibles that may have not been in the original print, e.g., the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery?
1: I can take this. I, I, I preached on this last week, so I think this is sort of timely. In fact, I think I started out with my sermon saying, this is a disputed text, and so if you have questions about it, you should ask me. So, well done. <laughs> um, I think, I think what Jono started off with is really, well, why do we want to test out the foundations because we want a place to put a lot of weight on them? And so how do we deal with contradictory texts? How do we deal with stuff like uh, John chapter 8, which you know, in most of our translation says did not appear in the earliest manuscripts? Well, we don't place the full weight on them. So you, you would never take a, a doctrine or a theological belief that can't be backed up somewhere else in the scriptures but that doesn't mean you don't place some weight on them so you might not put down the high rise but you might put an outpost um so when it comes to contradictory scriptures stuff that's a little bit unclear a little bit uh hard to understand you interpret them in light of the easier scriptures um so you when, when it comes to solid ground you go all in you plank all your chips in and you build the high rise and uh with the other ones you build the outpost and you go okay uh this seems to be backing up stuff that I can see clearly and plainly throughout all of the scriptures. Um, we're not going to go all in on it, but I can, we can still use these because they're helpful. something like John chapter eight, especially, um, it passes the threefold test. We just don't know who wrote it. (laughs) So in some manuscripts it rocks up in John and some it rocks up in Luke and others. Um, that's why where we say it did not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Um, now there's some like I think uh, Matthew's Great Commission is Matthew's the one with like the snakes and stuff, Mark. Okay, so what would you do with that? Well, you probably don't go all in on that and start like a snake handling church, right? Like that's probably not what you do with that. You go, okay, uh, this is going to tell me something. I'm going to interpret it in light of the easier to understand scriptures.
0: Yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah, I, I think it's re- um, the fact that we're talking about this is, is tells you. Uh, a magnitude of, of, um, of, of what Christianity is all about because um, there are, are other faiths who spend all of their time trying to sweep stuff under the carpet, but Christianity says, and Jimmy said it this morning, we, we want to put our head on the chopping block, so we're open to investigation and, um, and with scriptures like those that are, that are um, kind of, we're not sure exactly where they happened or when, uh, we say in the footnotes, in everyone's Bible, not just the secret Christian ones, like everyone, we're not sure about this. And the reason we're not sure is because we have 5,000 New Testament manuscripts that we can go back and check them against. That's unheard of, unheard of. It's 1,000 times more data than we have for anything else in Greco-Roman history, which is one of the most studied historical ages that we have, and it's still a 1,000 times more than that. And so that's how we can know. We can go back. And so with a a thing like John 8, with the woman caught in adultery, most scholars believe this happened, but it may not have happened in this chronological sequence. Um, And another thing to remember about this as well, when we're talking about perceived contradictions, A, we're finite and we're sinful. So we don't understand all things. And if you look at the scholarship of the Bible, a hundred years ago, most Bible scholars thought John was completely fairy tale made up by someone on crack. Now, they very much believe in the veracity of it and the historicity of it. Um, so we, like stuff changes with our understanding, um, but also we need to understand that the the Bible is not as always as precise as we want it to be so th- this gets at whether something is an error or not. So if I ask you, um, what is two plus two, and you say five, you are in error, because mathematics requires absolute pre- precision. But if I say to you, Nolene, how old are you, and you say 50, hey. I do. Um, if someone asks me, how old are you, and I say 36, they don't say, ah ah. uh 36 and two months, right? Because in that context, I'm not trying to be absolutely precise. And much of what the Bible is communicating is not in scientific, mathematical, precise language. It's employing all kinds of things like parable and story and poetry and, um, and paraphrase of situations. And it uses language that we all use all the time and don't have a problem with. So it's good to, to we've got to understand what we're reading before we start holes in it. And I think the Bible time and again stands up to our scrutiny. I think
2: the next one was part of that. It's referring to the stories like the one of the woman caught in adultery, and it says, are they to be trusted?
0: Yeah, I think what Jimmy said is really good. So whenever you come to a passage that seems unclear, you go to the clear passage. This is what's called a basic tenet of hermeneutics. So how do we understand text? Well, if we've got clear ones that talk about the same thing that the unclear one is talking about, then we use that to interpret this. And the Bible constantly interprets itself. New Testament writers will interpret the Old Testament. And so um, so, I, I, I fully agree with what Jimmy said. We wouldn't build a whole doctrine on some of these disputed texts, but the great thing is that there aren't any that we build doctrines on. There are no... Doctrines that we believe about God and Jesus and salvation and the church, there's, none of them are disputed, are based on disputed texts. So we have so many manuscripts that 99% of the words in the scriptures are, can be traced back to the original, and the 1% that are left over don't have any bearing on what we actually believe about God or anything else. That's staggering if you know anything about any other text in history. And it's another reason I think God must have done this because this doesn't happen otherwise. This, this amount of information we have, manuscripts and hi- historical um, fiber, just doesn't happen anywhere else in literature. It's crazy. All
2: right. The next one's sort of a two-parter. I'll read it. It sounded to me like you were saying that the Bible is true because it says it's true. Then in the Ho- Holy Spirit section... It sounded like you were saying that unless you were convinced inwardly that the Bible is true, then you can't know. Is that what you meant?
0: Um, Was I saying the Bible is true because it says it's true? Yes, I was saying that. Um, Which, by the way, let me just do a little tangent because I know I have had multiple occasions where I've been talking to someone who's not a Christian and they've said, stop quoting the Bible, I don't believe in the Bible. And they'll say, you're just arguing in a circle, right? How do we believe the Bible? Because the Bible says it's true. Um, And that's a logical inconsistency. What you do with those people, this is a great little trick. You just say to them, what do you think we should do? how, how, How should we find out what's true? And they'll say, well, we should use our reason. And you can say, and why should we do that? And they'll say, because it's rational. And they've just argued in the same circle. Because it's impossible to make any kind of argument that isn't circular. It really is. And the reason we say the, we refer to the Bible is because God is the only fit witness to himself. We've got, apart from speculation, we can't know these things. We have to rely on his revelation. So I was saying the Bible is true because it says it's true, and I stand by that. Um, if the Holy Spirit doesn't give you an inner conviction, then you won't believe it's true. yes. So I'm assuming that for Christians, um, you believe what the Bible says about itself because the Spirit is working to illuminate you inwardly. Those two things go together. Uh, You can read the Bible your whole life and never believe any of it unless the Spirit is giving you that illumination. So I don't think it's either or, it's both and.
1: We, we believe the Bible is true, and we quote the Bible in saying that because we believe it's the highest authority in that God speaks, right? Because when we, when we appeal in arguments, that's what we do. We appeal to different authorities. Well, NASA says this, and the uh, APA says this, and the police say that, right? We appeal to the Bible because that's the highest authority, but the Bible also describes us as blind, right? It doesn't matter how many words are in the Bible if you're blind, you need God to take like open up your eyes to the truth of the text so the bible is true because it's the highest authority but we can only see it as true when god opens our eyes and opens our hearts and opens up our ears to its truth Mm. Uh,
2: the next one why should we trust these scriptures when other religions have similar scriptures good good question
1: um Uh, let, me, let me answer it like this. So I think there are three religions in the, in, in the entire scope of religions that, um, that are trustworthy for this reason. You look at most religions, and they are private revelations. So you look at the, the writings of Muhammad. So uh, Allah or an angel spoke to Muhammad, and he wrote it down. Okay? You look at the writings of uh, Buddha private revelation, and they were, they were written down. Um, and you, you see this sort of pattern time and time again, a celestial being spoke to someone and they wrote it down, and you can't really verify it, okay? It's, it's an, uh, unfalsifiable, so it can't be shown to be true or to be false, you sort of just have to take it on their word. There are three religions that don't do that, I think. Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Mormons. Now, Mormonism, you can just throw out. Right? because its writings have been shown to be historically false time and time again. Historians just, some of the claims that Joseph Smith came up with are just rubbish, right? just historically. Christians say, yeah, Judaism, yeah, we're down with that. right? But the thing with both Judaism and Christianity and Mormonism, right? they put their head on the chopping block and says, prove me false. So why do we hold the Christian scriptures to be the scriptures is because it puts its head on the chopping block. And unlike Mormonism, right, it stacks up time and time again. What we see in history, the way it describes certain events, the way things have happened, the things that have been discovered, like it stacks up. The history is on its side. So why do we hold these scriptures um, from a historical point of view? Because the head's on the chopping block and our heads are still on. That's why.
2: next question what do we lose if we don't hold to the scriptures i.e. don't trust them
0: I just I can't I can't imagine I can't imagine being a Christian without like there have been Christians who can't read and didn't have a copy of the scriptures but they were talking about got all the time, from what they knew from the scriptures. As they're, 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 actually, there isn't a Christian faith apart from the scriptures. And so like it's a very predictable pattern in churches that disregard the scriptures, they end up being non, non-Christians. They end up being a club for people who, like other old white people or whatever, whatever it is, and um, they die. This church is dying every week, and most of them have gotten rid of their love for and dependence on the Word of God. If God's not revealing himself to you, you don't know anything about it. Therefore, you don't have a relationship with him. He's not speaking to you. And, yeah, I don't know. Does anyone else have any ideas? You lose everything.
1: lose the scriptures you lose every promise that god has promised so you have nothing to base your hope on you've got nothing to base your assurance on you've got nothing to base your salvation on you've got no hope of knowing god outside of your feelings right and feelings are good but um, my feelings are inconsistent at best right my wife is laughing at me because i usually say they lie to us i've updated my language um i think if you don't hold fast to the word of god like you won't you won't say a christian not for very long. Um, there's a predictable pattern. And the, the scary thing is, right, we say this and we go, yeah, of course. We, we, we're, we're the kind of people who hold fast to the word of God. But uh, numerous studies show that biblical literacy is plummeting. Most Christians don't know their Bible. Okay? And so we, we hear about the Pharisees and how they like, had memorized the, the Torah and the Old Testament. And we go, wow, that's crazy. But it shouldn't be crazy. Like we should know the word of God richly and deeply so that we can know the promises of God and the assurance of him and we could know him intimately. There are treasures that we miss out on because we simply don't see them.
2: Hmm. All right, final question. What is the historical evidence for the Bible?
0: Uh, I, I don't know. I think I probably covered it, the. The Old Testament, signed and sealed. The one that Jesus read is the one we have. New Testament, more manuscript evidence for it than anything else in history. Um, it's like It might be good for some of you for your own sense of confidence to look into some of this stuff. It's very easily found. Um, I've got a really good little book, actually, called Can I, Can I Really Trust the Bible, I think. It's from the Good Book Company, which is a company in England. And they put out these little booklets, like, Is God Anti-Gay? And Did the Devil Make Me Do It? And all these things. And one of them is Can kind I of Really Trust the Bible? And it's really good. It goes into some of this stuff in, in a really so – you could read it in half an hour. Um, but, yeah, th- there's so much there. And I think a lot of us would have a lot more confidence if we just knew the facts that are widely available to everyone. Um, probably not much more I need to say on that. But you can, you really can trust the historicity of the Bible. Um, the, the, the really interesting thing is
1: that often the, the, the Bible is taken as a sort of a separate field of study than other historical events. So you look at someone like King Herod, and we have almost no evidence for him outside of the scriptures, um, but we, we're, we're totally fine with him, him existing, but the scriptures come under attack all the time. We have so much evidence for them. And then you come at someone like Alexander the Great, um, many kings and many historical figures that we sort of just take for granted. And we have almost no evidence for them no manuscripts, no, um, at least especially close to the time that they existed. And we go, but they probably totally existed. 5,000 manuscripts. There's a load of evidence that is in, like incredibly precise. The historical evidence is on the Christian side. And I think we would do well to to research it.